The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. How many of you have played that telephone game? When you tell someone a sentence at the beginning of the line, and then you send it down through the rest of the line, and when it gets to the end, you hear what the person heard. And often, it's really difficult to have any sense that there's a relationship between how it ended up and how it began. So Francis of Assisi died on the evening of October 3rd in 1226, 797 years ago. Immediately following his death, there were accounts of his life written with a little bit of embellishment as the intention was to set the stage for him to be canonized a saint, which they did less than two years after he died. There's thousands of books written, thousands of sermons given, thousands of stories about his life. Don't just sometimes wonder how we're doing with the accuracy of the origin? If we can end up with a great distortion of one simple phrase in one sitting, imagine 797 years and millions of people seeking to pass a whole life story down the line. Heck, I sometimes wonder if the way I tell the story about my own life is really how it was. Many of us are inspired by Francis of Assisi, but what do we really know about Francis, the human being, and his lifetime of words, dreams, deeds, thoughts. There are the familiar stories that get passed down on over the centuries that tell us one of them is that he was a peacemaker, that he would be called upon to mediate conflict between people who were fighting, sometimes between the bishops and the mayors, which we don't ever have today, do we? Um, he'd be called in to try to mediate the conversation. Another story is that during the Fifth Crusade, he risked his life to cross the battlefield to have a conversation with the Sultan. He wanted to share his Christian faith with the Muslim Sultan. And the Sultan was so moved by the sincerity and the deep faith of Francis that he arranged that Francis would then be escorted back home safely. The end of the war was not achieved at that moment, but both men were transformed and they parted with a deep respect for each other's faith. It was this encounter, this desire for peace between neighbors, 
between nations that still to this day inspires the Franciscans to take a lead in the Christian-Muslim dialogue. In pictures about St. Francis, we often see him sitting with animals or speaking with birds, surrounded by the trees and the plants. He is named the patron saint of ecology. He did not believe that humans were to have dominion over all the earth and that all of us are one, all creatures, all people. Brother sun, sister moon, sister water. And we must acknowledge and care for the earth. One of the most famous stories of Francis as a peacemaker and a brother with creatures is when he went out to meet with a wolf in the town of Gubbio. This wolf was frightening the townspeople. He was um, roaming around, attacking people, attacking animals. And so when Francis came into the town, people began to tell him about this fear-inducing um, wolf. So fearless and with compassion, Francis went out to meet with the wolf in his cave. He didn't set out to reprimand him or blame him or judge him or push him out of sight. He set out to meet him with a genuine desire to connect. Francis understood that ferociousness comes for all of us when one is hungry and tired and treated as an outcast. He asked Brother Wolf if he would seize his frightening ways if the townspeople would come together to make sure he had a welcoming space and to have food so that he no longer had to suffer hunger. The wolf agreed. And the story is told that Francis then extended his hand and the wolf in turn raised his forepaw and placed it in Francis's hand. It's a sign that it's a mutual commitment. Now are all these stories true? Did they happen as they have been passed down to us? Does it really matter? What we do know is that Francis of Assisi lived in such a way that he left a lasting impression on the earth, such that here we are, 797 years after his death, telling stories of his life that have inspired and challenged millions of people, including me. At the Fool's Court in the Tenderloin, we have a wooden statue of Siddhartha the Buddha and St. Francis. Kay and I acquired them soon after we moved into the Fool's Court, and they st stood outside our bedrooms. And in the evenings, when we bid one another a good night, a bit like the Waltons, we'd say, good night, Kay, good night, Carmen, good night, Sid, good night, Frank. <laughs> For St. Francis was Francis a human being 
with a human heart that was infused by faith and perseverance and maybe a little craziness. They are necessary traits when one needs to keep on moving when their way of being is met with doubt and misunderstanding. The loyalty is to the drumbeat of one's heart, even if we ourselves don't know where we are going, except maybe for Francis toward God, toward love. Francis was saintly to some and a nuisance to others. He was a fool, more comfortable on the streets with the marginalized of our world than in a fortified edifice or an office. For him, he said, the world is my cloister. It is true. We do not all have the same call as Francis, but the, the mandate that rings in my ears comes from one of my own Franciscan sisters when we were living in Nicaragua. We were reading material sent to us that was saying, to be Franciscan means this, and to be Franciscan means that. And Joanne threw up her arms and said with exasperation, Francis lived with compassion. So to be Franciscan means to live with passion. So may it be so for all of us. Amen, sister. Oh, I have a confession to make. Um, that thing about telling stories and embellishing a little bit, and maybe it's not exactly accurate, I'm about to launch into that um, full force. I, I realized I, I didn't really know enough about Francis to talk about him, and when Father Vitale's passing reached my ears, I realized today I didn't really want to talk about Francis all that much. I just wanted to talk about Louis. Um, but I didn't know him very well. I, mean, I met him once or twice, um, and there are probably people here who um, know him a lot better. Uh, maybe participated in various actions with him, sat with him, did a lot of work with him. But I just know a few stories, and like I said, I met him once or twice. So what I'm going to tell you about him moved me deeply and is one of the guiding stories in my life. Um, but to tell you the truth, I don't know how accurate the story is. So I'm gonna tell it to you as I know it with my own little embellishments and you can consider me the second person or maybe the 50th person in that game of operator and take it for what it's worth. So the Gubbio Project is a place that started in the Tenderloin, a church where people were welcomed to come and sleep um, between 6 a.m. and 12 p.m., 12 noon. Um, because often people needed to sleep. But before the Gubbio project started, there would be people going to St. Boniface, the church in the, in the Tenderloin, and sleeping in the pews, and it was becoming a problem. So there were people who wanted to put up signs saying, no sleeping in the pews. And Father Vitale was the pastor of St. Boniface and was 
a little disturbed by that, but he realized kind of how impractical it was to really open the doors because you need to do cleaning, you need staff, you probably should give out some socks and have other resources. It's not like you just open the doors. Like, to be engaged with people is to be committed. And he wasn't too sure about whether that would be practical. So as this discussion was going on at St. Boniface, he went someplace and engaged in a protest, or maybe he gave a speech, or I don't know, he was traveling, and his plane was derailed or delayed, and he spent the night in an airport, and he was like bone tired. So he went to the, the airport chapel to get a little rest, and he sat down, and there was a brass plaque that said, no sleeping in the pews. And he was exhausted. And now I'm sure Father Vitale didn't have this reaction because he's not quite as, as uh, irascible as I am. I know I would have been just so pissed off. <laughs> like, I'm a friar, I'm a Franciscan, why can't I sleep in the chapel? You know, a little bit of privilege there, but no. He came home and he talked with Shelley Roeder, who was the executive director of the St. Boniface Neighborhood Center, and he said, look, I think, I think we need to do this. I think we need to do it. And so the Gubbio project was begun. They raised the money, they hired the staff, and if you go and look at their website, you will see the pictures of the original Gubbio project down in the Tenderloin with people wrapped in beautiful blankets, sleeping pew after pew after pew. And when I first knew the Gubbio Project, I remember walking in and hearing this beautiful sound of people asleep. You know, when people are exhausted and they're sleeping, it is such a gift. And I remember just being so moved by the reality of that. The thing that strikes me about the story of Father Vitale is that he did it. He opened the group Gubbio project, put his strength and energy there because he was tired. He knew what it was to be tired. And that's a pretty human thing. We see that a lot in airports, don't we? We see tired kids, tired parents, tired business travelers, tired vacationers, tired cabin attendants, tired ticket agents. Everybody in an airport is tired. And honestly, these days, if you go to a Zoom meeting, everybody is tired. If you go to the grocery store, everybody is tired. You hang out on the street, you see people who are tired. People waiting for Lyft are tired. People waiting for Uber are tired. People waiting for the bus are tired. People living in tents are tired. People asking for change are tired. Everybody is tired. And if we're honest about it, there is no difference between being sleep deprived because you're a young parent or because you're sleeping in a tent. Tired is tired, sleep deprived is sleep deprived. You get cranky, you get short tempered and your body and spirit get worn down. It doesn't matter why. When you recognize that experience in one other person, that's empathy. Oh honey, I know how hard that is. But when you see it in your fellow human beings writ large, when you see it in whole groups of people, young parents, bus drivers, people living on the streets, you experience solidarity. You know you are just like them. 
you experience that kind of disinterested and dispassionate community of interest that Hannah Arendt talked about. It's not because you care about your mom is tired or your kid is tired, it's that human beings are tired and you just know what that feels like. That is what it is to experience the wonder of our common humanity. I don't know you, but oh, I know how you're feeling. That's what it means to understand the strong and the rich no less than the weak and the poor. It is what it means to look at a sign in an airport chapel and know that it is just as cruel and inhuman as a church in the Tenderloin. The remarkable thing about Louis Vitale's airport experience is that he didn't just leave his experience with empathy, he expanded it to solidarity and that solidarity became action. He knew that you don't have to put up a sign in a church or a chapel saying no sleeping if there aren't people looking for a safe place to sleep. You don't have to put up signs forbidding people to do things that they don't need to do in that space. And he understood that there is something terribly wrong if you have to put up a sign. But he also knew that it is a lot easier to put up a sign than to address the need. So he was thoughtful about it. He wasn't reactive. He didn't just do it. He worked with Shelley and made it happen as a community. There's one other piece about Father Vitale's story that really touches me. And that is that when he came back from that airport experience, he must have asked himself, what is mine to do? Should I be writing sternly worded letters to the airport authority? Or should I be talking to the congregants of my church? What is mine to do in the face of this experience? So he did open that that the Gubbio project, people did sleep there. It wasn't an earth-shattering thing. The world did not suddenly change, but it was a necessary thing. So I find myself thinking it's important to ask ourselves, what is mine to do? And that's a very Franciscan thing. They say that when Francis was on his deathbed, he looked at his brothers and he said, I have done what is mine to do now you go and do what is yours to do. What an amazing gift that is, isn't it? A founder, a leader who is content with his, what he has done himself, knew what he was supposed to do, and then instead of saying, here are the rules, here's the program, here's the mission, you go do this, this is the right way to do it, he just said, go and do what is yours to do. And that is a remarkably human gift that we can give to each other. What is yours to do? Let me support you in it. Here is mine to do. Come and do it with me. I think that's a particularly Franciscan gift to our world. Mm -hmm.